God had a plan to uh, humble me for the duration of my life when he led me to marry my wife. (laughs) She is really bright. And um, she's really bright and particularly good at things like riddles and puzzles. And, you know, have you ever played the board game Scrabble? I don't even play her. It's too humiliating. Do you like mysteries? Do you like riddles? All right, I've got some for you. Okay, here's a riddle. It is greater than God and more evil than the devil. The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you'll die. What is it? Yeah, that's how I feel too. (laughs) Actually, when I hear riddles, I just lock up. I don't know... What to do? I'm thinking, and you know, several years ago we were in Global Village one evening walking around and a local uh, radio personality came up with a microphone and there was a camera uh, behind her, a cameraman, and she came up and she said, if you can answer the riddle, you'll win a prize. And she blurted out this riddle and I just locked up. You know, I'm like, prize, prize, I could win a prize. <laughs> what is you know, and Joanne got it just like that. We won a Rivoli watch. It was great. Um, and I think it actually might have been this riddle that I just read for you. Do you know what it is? The answer is nothing. Nothing is greater than God. Nothing is more evil than the devil. Poor people have nothing. Rich people need nothing. And if you eat nothing, you'll die. Okay, I've got one more for you. I am the beginning of the end and the end of time and space. I am essential to creation and I surround every place. What am I? The letter E, yeah. Were you in the first service? (laughs) Okay. Yes, it's the letter E. You know, reading... Bible prophecy can seem like reading riddles sometimes. It's confusing. It's mysterious. We don't know what the author is talking about or who the author is talking about. It's, it's like a puzzle. And that can deter us from opening up our scriptures to books like Isaiah. But the prophetic books of the Bible are well worth your effort to unravel and understand because they are God's word for us even today. This morning we're beginning a four-week series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of what are called the four major prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have wanted to be one of the minor prophets. Um, But Rest assured, the minor prophets are just as important as the major prophets. The major prophets are only major because their writings are longer. The minor prophets are shorter. Isaiah himself, the man, lived in the area near or in Jerusalem 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And we learn from the book of Isaiah that his father's name was Amoz. And that is about all we know about Isaiah. We don't know much more about him than the fact that he was a prophet. And a prophet is someone who speaks a word of God to the people. 
Now, when you think of prophets, and I think of prophets, oftentimes we think primarily of people who make predictions about the future. But the prophets actually spoke much more broadly than just predictions. Oftentimes God had a word for the people about what was happening right then and there in their land and amongst them. Their writings are broader in scope than just predictions. But there's another unique thing about prophets that you may have picked up on in Butch's reading from Isaiah chapter 6. And that is that prophets are called out by God. No one goes to prophecy school and gets a BA in prophecy and submits their CV to God in order to be a prophet. No, God calls prophets to himself. God called Isaiah, and Isaiah said, here I am, send me. So in the next four weeks, we'll cover four very important passages in Isaiah. They're called the servant songs, and you'll soon learn why they are. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning, if you have them, to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. If you're not sure where that is, open your Bible up right about to the middle, and you'll probably hit the Psalms or the Proverbs. And then take a right to get to Isaiah, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, And to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place. And new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. I was sitting with some youth and teenagers this week. And I decided to read this passage to them. I I really like to do that. Um, Whoever I meet with through the week leading up to a sermon I'm giving, I like to open the passage up and say, what do you think about this? What questions do you have? And I did just that. We read it together. And I asked them, what are the first questions or observations that you have? And one of the younger ones said, who is the servant? You know what? That is the question that all the Ph.D. Bible scholars debate and discuss. That's what they spend their time talking about, primarily in this passage. It's the most obvious question from the passage, isn't it? It's the thing that jumps off the page at you. The servant is introduced 
and described throughout. It's told what he's like and what he's going to do and what he's going to face, but he's never named. To be fair, if we had the time, and you should take the time actually, we would read through chapters 1 through 41. I encourage you to do that. And if we did that, we would find that typically in those chapters, the servant is referred to is Israel. The people who are descended from that man, Jacob, the, the nation of the Jews. Chapter 41, verse 8 says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. But it's not that simple. It's not that simple in chapter 42. You see, there's problems. There's, there's actually many problems. And the biggest of those problems is that this servant described here is far too wonderful and powerful and victorious to be the same servant that Isaiah has been describing in chapters 1 through 41 and the chapters that come after that. You see, God has said through Isaiah to the Israelites that you guys are resentful for one. You're also a bunch of complainers. You're fearful and you're hostile. He even goes so far as to call them blind and deaf. And worst of all, he says they're being disobedient. They are actually worshiping other gods. They're idolaters. They are a spiritual mess. But this servant, this servant in, in chapter 42 is different. In fact, he, he seems to be everything that Israel isn't but should have been. Now let, let me explain that. We have to go back to the book of Genesis, the very first book in the Old Testament, and remember about the man named Abraham. You see, God had chosen Abraham and promised to make him into a great nation and to bless him, and through his seed and his descendants to bless all the nations of the earth. That was the promise. Fast forward hundreds of years later, when there is a nation of Israel... And Moses leads them out of Egypt and up into the promised land. And God gives them his law there by the the mountain of Sinai. And you see, under Moses' leadership, the nation of Israel was to have faith in God and obey him via his law so that their nation would be set apart and different than all the other nations. And therefore, God would get the glory And the other nations would know about the Lord God. Fast forward hundreds of years later. And we come to King David. And God promises King David. That a descendant of yours. Will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And he will rule in righteousness and justice and holiness. And he'll lead the nation that way. And therefore he'll make God's name great. But Israel, Israel the nation, I mean, Abraham's descendants were deeply flawed. And even before Moses could get down off the mountain, the people were disobeying God and being just like the nations all around them. And the descendants of King David were all disappointments and flawed. Many of them could even be called wicked. 
Israel, the nation, had consistently failed God in their character and their mission to the world. So this, this servant, this servant is very different. I want you to look with me now down through these verses and let's learn about the servant before we decide who the servant is. The first set of characteristics about the servant is that the servant is approved and empowered by God. In verse 1 we see that it's almost as if God is announcing this servant as a king to be crowned. God's promising to uphold him, to hold him fast. it, It almost implies that This servant is God's own man for the job. He's called him in righteousness, it says in verse 6. In other words, he has the moral qualifications to do the job that God has for him. The servant is also someone that God delights in. Did you see that? That's in verse 1. Now, I know when I delight in someone, and, and just thinking of who do I delight in, I think, of course, of my wife and my children. I enjoy being with them. They bring me joy. This servant brings God joy and gladness. He loves him and he enjoys his presence. In verse 6, when God speaks directly to the servant, he tells him that he will take his hand and he will keep you. And it conveys the idea, of course, that God is going to be ever-present with this servant. Perhaps the most empowering thing of all is in verse 1, of course. In verse 1 where God says, I will put my spirit on you. His actual spirit on this servant. The servant is approved and empowered by God, but he's also gentle and compassionate. Verse 2 tells us that he'll not shout or cry out or raise his voice Now, in other words, what that means is that his revolution will not come through gritted teeth and brute force, but it's going to come with gentleness. He's not out to shout down those who would oppose him. He's not out to accomplish his task through domination and aggression. Coupled with that, he is someone who has compassion for those who are weak and wounded and and seem to be even useless for society. When it says that he'll not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, it's implied, of course, that he'll do the very opposite. He'll mend broken people, and he will fan into flame those who are withering and weak. This servant, this servant is gentle and compassionate. In addition, this servant is going to be a hope and a promise himself. Verse 4 tells us that the islands will put their hope in his law. Now, this likely means the islands that ringed the Mediterranean Sea. And as such, it would indicate to the Jews people who are far off and far away. People that are different than them. So... So this servant is going to bring a law or a word, literally, a message that's going to be not just for them. It's going to be for all people around them. He's going to be a hope for all people. The theme of hope is continued in verse 7 as we read that the servant is going to do what? He's going to open the eyes of the blind. He'll be the embodiment of hope, literally, because he's going to rescue. Captives are going to go free. 
Prisoners are going to be released. God is described in verse 5 as this sovereign creator and sustainer. And God is going to make this person, this one, to be a covenant for the people. Now, take note of that. God is not just going to send this servant with a promise. God is going to send this servant as a promise. In him will be all the blessings that the people can enjoy. His words and his actions are worth hoping in, and he himself is God's promise fulfilled. Lastly, I want to point you to the last two themes that I've noticed here. One is the most subtle theme, and the other is perhaps the strongest theme. First, the servant is going to be opposed. Do you see that? In verse 4, it's implied, because he says, he will be faithful, he will not falter, nor will he be discouraged. But though he's opposed, the servant will be victorious in doing what? Establishing justice. It says that three times in those first four verses. He'll bring justice to the nations, like the islands. He'll bring forth justice. And finally, and climactically, it says, he'll establish justice on the earth. Wrongs will be righted. Peace will reign. God will rule. And it will all happen through this servant. Who is the servant? Who is this servant? The Jews wondered for hundreds of years. This servant is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord. Jesus, of course, is the Israel that Israel could never be or never would be. He's the descendant of Abraham who would, through him, bless all the nations of the earth. He is the word of God who kept God's law perfectly, unlike Moses and the Israelites. And he is the royal descendant of David who sits on the throne at the right hand of God in heaven. And he rules righteously and brings glory and honor to the Father. Jesus fulfills the role of the perfect and faithful Israel with grace and power. And he fulfills all these descriptions of him as well as we walk back through these. Jesus was approved and empowered by the Father. Do you remember at his baptism? Jesus came up out of the water and what happened? The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And God announced, God the Father announced, Here is my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Jesus says in John 5, verses 20 and 21, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. In John chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it back up again. Jesus is also gentle and compassionate. I need very little to convince you of that, don't I? As we look back in these scriptures and we look to the New Testament, Jesus fulfills that role. Jesus touched the untouchable. 
Jesus gathered little children around him and even argued with the disciples and told them, let them come to me. And Jesus healed thousands and thousands of sick and diseased people who streamed to him. Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew says that when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion because they were like harassed and helpless sheep. He never shouted down the authorities or those who opposed him, did he? He would turn them away with a brilliant reply and reveal their hypocrisy in so doing. And as he stood before the people, the people who were crying out unjustly, crucify him. What did he do? Did he defend himself? No. He was quiet. Jesus is also a hope and a promise from God, isn't he? Just like the servant. Do you remember when Jesus was brought as an infant by Joseph and Mary to the temple? The old man, Simeon, who was a faithful man of God, came and held him in his arms. And this is what he said. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And at his last meal with his disciples, Jesus held up the cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus was the covenant for the people, the new covenant, that is. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. In other words, Jesus is the answer yes from God for all those promises for all those hundreds and thousands of years. Jesus was opposed as well, just like this servant, wasn't he? Jesus was opposed by the Jewish leaders of his day just As he went from place to place, he was stalked even in the countryside, in Galilee, and then in Jerusalem. They peppered him with skeptical questions, and they eventually sought to entrap him and kill him. Even as early as the third chapter in Mark, we see the Pharisees going and plotting with the Herodians, how can we kill this man? And they did kill him. But how? How is Jesus, how has Jesus been victorious like this servant? How has Jesus established justice on the whole earth? Just like verse 4 tells us. Jesus was victorious because his purpose given by the Father was to live a morally perfect life and then to die unjustly at the hands of the Jews. I remember last spring, uh, Joanne 
and Leanne were leading a women's Bible study, and they were studying passages about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one woman came to them afterwards and said, you know, I always thought Easter was a sad time because Jesus had been killed. But now I see that that's what Jesus wanted. That was his purpose. That's why he came. And so it's a cause for rejoicing. It's a victory for God that Jesus died on the cross. This is the way that Jesus establishes justice. You see, his life, his death, his resurrection are the finished work that are necessary to save sinners. And now, ever since that time, and for the 2,000 years up till this point, that finished work is being applied to all those people that God the Father has given to the Son. So when the gospel is proclaimed here this morning and anywhere else on the face of the planet today, Jesus is justifying sinners when they repent and believe that good news. He is being victorious. He is accomplishing his task still. Whoever and whenever someone puts their trust and faith in him as Savior and Lord, you see, justice has been done for that person. Their sins are accounted for. They are made right with God. They enter into the realm of God's rule as a son or daughter of his. And you see, that proclamation of the gospel, that, that bringing in of all the appointed people that God has for salvation, that will continue until Jesus comes back in glory and power. And then it will not be a return in compassion and gentleness. He will come back to judge and the establishment of justice on the whole earth will be completed. Listen with me for just a moment to Revelation 19 verse 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will judge. And every sin will be accounted for. For those who are in Christ, the cross paid the price. For those who have not repented and believed, they will face eternal punishment. Justice will be done in both cases. If you are visiting here at Redeemer, maybe this is your first week, or maybe you've been coming for a number of weeks, and you are not a Christian, you have not repented and put your faith and trust in Jesus, the servant of the Lord, we are really glad you're here. 
We are so glad, and we want to get to know you. We want to share our lives with you. But one day, maybe today, you must decide where you stand with Jesus. If he were to come today, and he could come today, would you stand on the side of God, agreeing with God that you are lost because of your sin and your rebellion against him? No matter how nice of a person you are, and no matter how much of a wretch all the other people around you are, would you stand on the side of God and agree with him? You can take his side today. You can repent of your sin. You can put your trust in Christ's work to do justice for you. If you do, then you will go from death to life. And God will come and put his very presence, the Holy Spirit, in you. And you will live eternally with him. Maybe... You are coming this morning and you are sensing your own frailty, your own moral weakness. Maybe you just barely made it here this morning. When we read about bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, your heart is touched. Is there one who could mend me? Is there one who could fan into flame me? Draw near, draw near to this compassionate servant of the Lord, Jesus. Listen to his words one more time from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, eternal rest. What are you facing Cast your cares on this servant of the Lord. Perhaps like me, you're amazed when you read these words that were spoken hundreds of years before Christ and 2,700 years before today. And you see in the scriptures that he is still a light to the Gentiles. And in his law, far off people are indeed now putting their hope. Is there someone in your life? I know there is. Actually, I shouldn't even ask that. There is someone in your life. There are some people in your life who need to know about this servant of the Lord. In fact, this week, maybe this afternoon at lunch, you need to open up the scriptures to Isaiah chapter 42 and you need to read it with them and you need to explain to them that this is about Jesus. Maybe you need to get on Skype and talk to a family member back home. Maybe you need to Round up your children and read this passage and explain to them that it's Jesus foretold here. He is God himself come to rescue his people. And I want you, after you do that, to invite them to repent and believe in him. Don't just leave it at information about Isaiah. Invite them. If you do that, you will be the one who is bringing words of eternal life to them. And you can't screw it up. God, the Holy Spirit, will apply it to their lives if they repent and believe. What a privilege. What an honor. 
What a delight. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you and praise you that in these former days you spoke through prophets, but now you have revealed yourself in all your glory and splendor in Jesus Christ. And we don't have to speak in veiled terms about the servant of the Lord who would come. No, we speak in plain terms about Jesus and his gospel. Oh Lord, we live to serve you. Oh Lord, we live to proclaim you. And I pray, Father, that you would empower us and send us out from here. Lord, for those who are weak and withering, I pray, Father, that you would mend the broken ones and fan into flame those who are smoldering. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not yet put their faith and trust in you, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith and make them alive. In Jesus' name, amen.